forever would change the face of Christianity as we know it. Using a metal alloy printing typeface, texts using this, could, this device could now be printed and distributed widely. Of course, we know this as the printing press. And this device launched what we call the printing revolution, which meant that ordinary people could now have texts to hold for themselves, to read, and to examine. Books that were previously unattainable except to the most wealthy and the most powerful. Of course, the only book that came out of Gutenberg's specific shop was the Holy Scriptures. And at that point, the Bible was in the Latin Vulgate, the the language of the elite. In the early 1500s, a Roman Catholic theologian named Desiderius Erasmus uh, took the Scriptures, the Latin Vulgate, and translated it back into the original Greek language. He, of course, was dedicated to the papacy and to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but he still wanted the, the language of the original texts that he could study for himself. But, of course, then, as we know, a young monk named Martin Luther got a hold of Erasmus's Greek translation and translated it into, scandalously, the German language of the people. Martin Luther, as he was captivated by the truth of God's word, recognized that the people needed the language of the Bible that they could read for themselves. And of course, we know the Reformation from that moment on spread throughout Europe and to the rest of the world. Of course, when the Reformation in the mid-16th century reached the shores of a tiny North Atlantic nation called Iceland, there was a a bishop there that, of course, saw that they needed the language, the the scriptures translated into the Icelandic tongue as well. And so Bishop Guthbrandr Thorlaksen took the, the, the text that he had and translated it so that to that day and to this day, uh, we have an Icelandic translation. And so as we've seen just the expansion of the word of God, translations into the common language of the people, we rejoice with this, right? We know the names of people, of men and women who have striven for centuries to translate the Bible faithfully into the tongue of the people. And the reformers from the very beginning were dedicated to this removing the scriptures from under the sole authority of the church elite as people would go to the mass and not even understand what they were hearing. They, they strove after having the text in the people's own tongue. As Pastor Corey read the story of Babel, and as we will look at in, in a few moments the story of Pentecost, we see that language, the tongue of the people, How we speak and communicate has been from the very beginning the defining culture and the defining mark that forms human civilization. We're not all together always in the same location. Family isn't necessarily biological as we have adoption, but the one thing that ties every culture together is the language that they speak. I, I rejoice to see this church that has so many cultures represented, so many ethnicities And even as you have signs that are in different languages, we rejoice knowing that there is one thing that holds us together, and that is the blood of Christ. Will you pray with me as we dig into God's word this morning? Father, we rejoice in the fact that you are not a God who has kept yourself distant, but you have given us your holy word. You have revealed yourself to us 
You are so much farther and higher above us as our creator, and yet you have condescended to us and given us your revelation so that we might know you. And you haven't left this in the hands of a specific class of people, but you have been working throughout history so that men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation could come to the saving faith that is in Jesus Christ alone. So Lord, I ask that you would bless this time as we dig into your word. Help me to step aside and uh, speak through me. Use the Holy Spirit and anything that I might say that is an error. Please let it pass immediately from the ears of this congregation. Lord, may you use the anointing of your spirit to empower your word as it reaches our hearts. That's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So as we look at Genesis chapter 11, right, a, a story that many of us are familiar with, the Tower of Babel. Just to paint a little context, previously to this in chapter 10, um, Moses, who wrote Genesis, he presents what's called the Table of Nations. And if you look at this, it, it demonstrates and it lays out the descendants of Noah, right, his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, after the great flood, as they've dispersed over the face of the earth, and it, it details where they all spread out to. In chapter 11, as the Tower of Babel, this, this story we're familiar with, uh, as it's laid out, it's kind of reversing the script so that it's an ex explanation of why all of these people were spread out. Look at the beginning of this, this chapter, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, we don't know exactly how much time specifically passed between the flood and between the events of Babel, but it's not difficult to comprehend that everyone was probably sticking together as they've just gone through and they know the story of this cataclysmic judgment of God. Genesis uh, chapter 10, verse 25 speaks of the great-grandson of Noah, whose name was Peleg, and it says in that verse that it was in his day the earth was divided the traditional understanding of this is that this is referring to the, the Tower of Babel, um, that Peleg was alive and that it was in his day that the nations were dispersed. And so if that's correct, that means that it was only four generations from Noah to the time of Babel, which would mean that Noah himself was alive and present when the events of Babel took place. We see in verse 2, it says that, that the people have migrated from the east. As we read the, the many opening chapters of the book of Genesis, this language of moving east is used multiple times as symbolic of moving out of the presence of God. As we know, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they went east of Eden. And so as the people continue to move east, they are moving out of the presence of God of God. There's great irony in this considering that the, fa the feat they're about to attempt is to build their way to the heavens. By their own power, they are striving to move into the presence of God, though they are moving out of it. They land in this plain that's called Shinar. Uh, this plain is understood to have been between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, uh, what is now uh, modernly called Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia oftentimes is referred to as the cradle of civilization. Right? It's the oldest civilization that archaeologists and historians can, tra can trace human culture to. Isn't it interesting that we read the account of where all human cultures stemmed from, and it, of course, correlates exactly to what we see in history. 
Shinar, uh, the, the plain that they settle in, this is also the Hebrew word for the oldest written language, which is called Sumerian. And so all of these facts of history just go to demonstrate once again that God's word is true in everything it speaks on. So they say to themselves, come, let us build a tower and a city. So they begin to formulate how they for themselves can escape the judgment of God. And of course they say, lest we be dispersed across the nations. They, they attempt to build this tower with its tops in the heavens. And as you can imagine, if you think about the stories of the flood that had to have continued to be passed down generation to generation, it makes sense to think they would want to build a tower into the heavens so that they might escape once again that judgment of God. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Of course, I find this funny, knowing that they are the only civilization on earth at this point of time. Let us make a name for ourselves. For who are they making a name for themselves for? They're making a name for themselves, not for other human civilizations, because there are none. Which means the only thing they can have in mind is that they're making a name for themselves before God. They're saying, let us in our pride demonstrate to that God who judged us exactly who we are. He thinks that he can punish us, but we are going to, in our arrogance, defy the living God and build a tower to reach the heavens. It's interesting to see, too, that all, you know, many human cultures that are around us even to this day, we see these very large buildings, right? Oftentimes, people think of these as a ziggurat. And even to our, our day today, we're fascinated by feats of architecture as people build towers that pierce the sky, as though there's no limit to what humanity in and of itself can achieve. Of course, when the two towers fell on September 11th, it wasn't just construction material that fell, right? It was symbolically an attack upon the American spirit. And so these feats of architecture that represent human pride just demonstrate the arrogance of the people of Babel. And of course we see, why, why are they pursuing this? They say, lest we be dispaced over the face of the earth. And of course we know from the, the first chapter of Genesis, the very first command that God ever gave to Adam was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And the people of Babel here are saying, we're not going to do that. Right? We're not going to do that at all. We are going to join together. We're going to build a tower and a city in our arrogance so that we can have it how we want it. Right? Mankind had given this command first in Eden and then exactly right after uh, the flood, right? Noah is given this commandment again in chapter 9 of Genesis. One commentator talked about empires. And he said, every government that seeks to build an empire requires two things. First, a center of unity. Of course, we see this very clearly here, right? A tower and a city that pierces into heaven. And they need a motive for expansion. What is the motive for Babel? It's that they might stand in arrogance in front of God. The story continues in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. We can clearly see the, the humor here. 
right? As they're trying to build a tower into heaven, God must come down even to see it, right? It's a, just a, the humor there is, is clear. And the children of man, right? This phrase that is used to describe the seed of the serpent that wars against the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. And God says as he looks at this tower, he says this is only the beginning of what they might do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. At first glance, this might look like a compliment on God's part. Like, you know, nothing that they do will be able to be thwarted. This is not a compliment, though, on God's part. Right? God sees the depths of the depravity of our hearts, and he knows exactly that if he allows them to remain in their arrogant rebellion, that no level of sin will be impossible for them. Their civilization will remain unified in their pride against God. Interestingly, note the parallel between this passage and exactly what God's response is to Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, and therefore God disperses Adam and Eve out of the garden. Right? This is not... Uh, this isn't God saying, well, we better act quick because if they get that, that fruit from the tree of life, we're going to be in trouble. Right? This is God being merciful, knowing that if Adam and Eve, in their sinful state, take from the tree of life and eat, they will forever be condemned. Right? God kicks them out of Eden and uses that as the beginning and gives the promise of the seed of the woman And this is the beginning of the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture. And so God says, let us go down and confuse their language. Right? Though this is judgment, this is also mercy. This is mercy upon the people of Babel as God recognizes and knows full well in his sovereignty that depravity will be taken care of once and for all. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God in his majesty doesn't even require effort to thwart whatever man thinks he can do. The name Babel, we see this all throughout Scripture. Babel comes to represent symbolically prideful human arrogance. Right? The, the, the empire of Babylon, which of course takes Israel into captivity. Babylon we see all throughout the book of Revelation as the government which rebels against God. Even our English word Babel, right? this represents and denotes unintelligible speech. The Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And we see this as, as I mentioned, both judgment but also mercy. And thankfully, this is not the end of the story, right? This, this, uh, the very next chapter of Genesis is the call of Abram. One man from one nation, from one family, who through his line, the promised Messiah comes. So how do we understand this, the event of Babel? The first thing we recognize is that the entire history of the world 
Every language and culture comes from this very moment of God's judgment and also mercy upon the people. Right? We, we recognize the large language groups of the world, Mandarin and Spanish, Swahili, Russian, English, Portuguese, Arabic, Punjabi, Hindi, Bengali, Japanese, and the list goes on and on. Linguists have estimated that there are, are around 7,100 different language groups in the world today. And these all derive from this very short story in the book of Genesis. And of course, we know that the history of humanity and cultural strife has not been one of, of joy. Right? The cultural and ethnic clashes and persecution throughout history as each culture develops its own norms, its own beliefs, its languages, and its rituals, which war against other cultures and ethnicities, which has led to this endless, str endless strife and division between man and man, between nation and nation. So in the first chapters of Genesis, 1 to 11, we see all three human relationships broken. In the fall, we see the division between man and God, the ultimate relationship, split as man fell into sin. In the flood, we see the division between man and creation, man and the natural world, as the deluge poured forth and man was judged. And then here at Babel, we see the, the division of man and man as cultures and languages and people groups are divided and strife moves forward. But of course, also Babel points us forward to the redemptive history as God, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, onward through the history of Israel, the kingdom, the exile, the return, and of course, culminating in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the entire storyline of Israel stems from this very moment with Babel. And this isn't the end of the story. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, where we see God's majestic reversal of the events of Babel. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and, vi and visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty work of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. So, of course, after Christ's victorious death, burial, and resurrection, he appears to his disciples, and he promises, he says, I'm going to ascend back to the right hand of the Father, but I'm going to send a helper to empower you, so go to Jerusalem and wait there until I send him. The day of Pentecost, in the Old Covenant, the day of Pentecost, uh, also called the Feast of Weeks, took place 50 days after Passover. Passover, right? We know this as Christ, the final Passover lamb, the sacrifice once for all time, the final and greatest Passover, and now he sends his spirit on the final and greatest day of Pentecost. Uh, Some translations uh, say when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. I truly appreciate that translation uh, as it points forward to the fact that this is the final, this is the penultimate Pentecost that the church needs as it's empowered through the Holy Spirit. Notice what verse 1 says. It's it's speaking of the disciples. It says they were all together in one place. And notice the reflection of Babel. As all of mankind was in one place here, all of the disciples, again, are gathered together in the upper room. And they came, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. They come down as divided tongues. And just as God at the, at the Tower of Babel had to come down to see what the people were building, just as Christ, the Word made flesh, came down in an incarnate human body in order to be the sacrifice, The Spirit was sent down to empower his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. This word divided tongues, interestingly enough, in the Greek this word divided is diamerizo, which is the exact same word in the Septuagint that Peleg, who we mentioned before, which his name means divided, This is the exact same word that his name is translated as. So just exactly what Peleg's name symbolized, the division of the peoples, here this word divided tongues is used to represent all of the nations and all of the languages of the world that are resting on these 12 disciples. Of course, we know fire all throughout scripture, right? Tongues of fire, fire is used to represent the holy presence of God, and this is identified as the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, uh, we see throughout the history of Israel that there were moments when people were filled with the Holy Spirit. The first two individuals in Scripture who were said to have had the Holy Spirit were Bezalel and and Aholiab, who were architects of the tabernacle. They were given the Holy Spirit to fulfill the construction of both the physical building as well as the furnishings of the tabernacle according to God's plan. Likewise, uh, two prophets in the time of Moses named Eldad and Medad were given the Holy Spirit and were prophesying. It's interesting that this is an interesting event 
um, when Eldad and Medad were given the Holy Spirit and were prophesying, um, the book of Deuteronomy says this, and a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Right, the old covenant did not have the Holy Spirit as a promise for the people. Right, we think of King Saul. We think of Samson who scripture says was given the Holy Spirit, and then the Spirit was removed through their sinful rebellion. But as Peter goes on to declare, if you read further in Acts chapter 2, this day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of what Joel chapter 2 prophesied, that the Spirit would come in the last days as they are inaugurated, and the age of expansion and declaration of the gospel would propel forth into the nations. And so the disciples are given this gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So unlike Babel, where these people were striving after their own strength to pursue this task, the disciples are pursuing this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 in chapter 2, it lays out this entire category of devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, some skeptics have looked at this passage and said, well, certainly there weren't people from every nation. All right? It's unlikely that there were people from China, from Mesoamerica, from uh, you know, the Native American tribes, so we can't count this as you know, Scripture being accurate. But when we look at this idea of every nation under heaven, and when it's clarified as all of these different people groups and all of these different areas from where these Jews came, Interestingly enough, is if you map these areas where these Jews are from, and you take a map of all of the table of nations from Genesis chapter 10, where Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their descendants settled, they are identical. Right? It's as though, again, Babel is being reversed. Here, the table of nations, as the people were dispersed, they are all coming back to Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost. I love this in verse 6. At, the sound of the mult- at, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Right? It's not as though the Holy Spirit came and all of the hearers suddenly understood one language. In fact, the disciples were given these tongues and everyone that was from out of town and from different language groups heard their own heart language their own native tongue. And these descriptions that these people are, it says bewildered. Verse 7, it says they were amazed, and it says they were astonished. I love this. This repetition demonstrates that these people just cannot possibly comprehend what is going on. And they proclaim, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of them, each one of us in his own native language? And what are they proclaiming? What are these disciples proclaiming to the people? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The grand redemptive story, right? The, the sermon that Peter preaches in this next section 
the story of redemption culminating in the life of Christ. This is the purpose of Pentecost. As the language groups of the world heard, finally, the truth of who their Messiah was. And so here we see, right, the word of God. They proclaimed the mighty works of God. This is the only means by which men and women can be saved. The spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel is the only power unto salvation. As we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, right, if we go and we do well, right, it is good to, to take care of people's physical needs, but if you do not ultimately proclaim the gospel, what good is it to give people water if their souls are headed for hell? Right? We need to do both of those things. The Word of God clearly says that there's no under name under heaven by which men may be saved. These people, it says they were amazed and perplexed, and yet there were still those at the end of this, this section that says they are filled with new wine. Right? There are those who, though they hear, they do not hear. And though they see, they do not see. They scoff at the disciples. And as they say, what does this mean? It demonstrates that they still need someone to explain this to them. Though they outwardly can understand what is happening, they have no idea by the power of which this is happening or what it means. If you think of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He encounters him on his chariot and he has the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it. And Philip goes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So this, this event of Pentecost, what is, uh, Brian Borgman calls this the down payment on the last day. I appreciate that. Uh, this last day presented in the book of Revelation when men and women will gather around the throne and in one voice proclaim the Lord and his glory. So how do we see this? What, how do we understand Babel being reversed in the day of Pentecost? What does this tell us about our God and about his work in salvation? First of all, where? Where did this take place? Well, the fact that this day of Pentecost took place in Jerusalem what in the Old Covenant was considered the very home of God, right, where the temple stood, this became the birthplace of the early church. And it wasn't meant to stay in Jerusalem, right? We know that at the stoning of Stephen, they were dispersed as they took the gospel to the nations. What about the when? What does the when, what does the timing of the day of Pentecost tell us about God? The fact that this takes place directly after the ascension of Christ, as we know, Psalm 2 speaks of Christ sitting at the right hand of God until the Father makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. 
Christ said that he bound the strong man so that the nations could no longer be deceived. Right? So the fact that this occurs after the ascension of Christ points to Christ as the one who sits at the right hand of God, the very Lord and King of all the earth. What about the who? What, what does the who of who is present at Pentecost tell us? Well, the men that were there, 12 disciples, right? One of the disciples, Judas, was gone as he had committed suicide after turning his back on, on Jesus. These weak vessels, these men who in Christ's darkest hour abandoned him and fled for their lives, they became the apostles that took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right, what other power is there that could possibly explain these few disciples? How's the fact that we are sitting here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we are believing in the God of Israel? We are proclaiming our faith in Yahweh. How else do we explain that other than the supernatural power of the Spirit? Right, showing that the Great Commission is never pursued through human power, but ultimately through the power of God. What does the what tell us? Right? What happens at Pentecost? What does that tell us about God? Well, we see this. Right? This, this day of Pentecost is the establishment of the church, the, the, the birthplace of the early church, as the embassy, embassy of Christ's kingdom on earth. It's the assembly of believers in local, healthy bodies. This needs to be the pursuit of the Great Commission. It's a delight to read, of course, in, in Acts that on this day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. That had to be a logistical nightmare for the disciples as they had 3,000 people they now had to baptize. But oh, that we would see that take place in our communities, that the power of the Spirit would pour out upon his people. So that is the where, the when, the who, and the what. But now, what is the why? Right, what, was the, what was the purpose of this, this event, this day of Pentecost? And as we look at this, what does the reality of the fact that each of these people heard in their own language the mighty works of God we have to proclaim that what this demonstrates is that God is most glorified in the beauty of diversity. In the beauty of his diverse people who, as we have brothers and sisters around the world that do not look like us, they do not speak like us, their day-to-day -day lives do not look like ours. We have brothers and sisters in China. We have brothers and sisters in Mozambique, in Brazil, yes, even in Iceland. We have brothers and sisters that look different, act different, speak different, and yet God is glorified through the diversity of his people. God is glorified by the redemption of people under the blood of the Lamb that don't look like us, that don't talk like us. Right? And when, when we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is the greatest testament to the unity that we have under the blood of Christ. So as we look at all of this, let's, let's take three points of application. First of all, the plan. 
the plan of, of God. As we see the, the grand covenants all throughout the Bible and we look back to the very first covenant before time, before time began, the inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption that God made to redeem his elect from every tribe and every tongue, from the ends of the earth. As we see that God has from time, from before time, he has saved and named a very people for himself, those for whose names are written in the book of life. And therefore, our passion If we seek to follow after God and to make his desires our desires, our passion must be the same goal, is to see the elect from the ends of the earth saved. Listen to Micah Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Isn't this glorious? They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hicks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the greatest reversal of Babel. The day when there is no more war, no more strife. So that's the plan. How about the power? The cross of Calvary is the only means through which the nations will be made glad, as the psalmist says. And therefore, as that is the only power, we cannot preach any other gospel than what God has told us. We cannot take a false gospel to the nations or even a watered-down gospel, right? We're well aware of false gospels, but how about a watered-down gospel? We need to be on guard so that we are proclaiming the, the mighty works of God, as Acts chapter 2 says. John chapter 12, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. As Christ hung on that cross with arms outstretched, pointing in one direction and the other, drawing all of his children to himself. So the plan, the power, and lastly, the perseverance. Right? We have the Father, we have the Son, and here, here we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who indwells both the, the early church, that is the same Holy Spirit that indwells each of us when we come to faith in Christ. Right? The goodness of the new covenant, different from the old, is that all of us know God. Right? The least of us do not have to be taught by the best of us or the, the wisest of us Know the Lord because we all know the Lord, those of us who are members of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. So the same Holy Spirit that entwelled those first disciples, and of course then who empowered the very least, the, the least likely of apostles, right, the Apostle Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, that is the same Spirit given to us 
That is the same spirit that will persevere us in the midst of the most difficult persecution. That is the same spirit by which we need to go and take up the mantle that the disciples and that Christ has called us to in Matthew chapter 28. Right? We must take, heartily take up the mantle through the power of the Spirit, knowing full well and resting in the fact that it is Christ and Christ alone who keeps us until the last day. Right? There is no persecution that can thwart God's plan. Right? The church of uh, God, the, the, the gates of hell, cannot stand against it as we take the gospel to the nations. Listen to Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So church, may we go forward with the plan of God in mind. May that be our goal. May we go forward with the power of Calvary as our only message to a needy world. And may we go forward with the preserving power of the Holy Spirit being our rest and our comfort. Not pursuing, as the, the men and women at the time of Babel, not pursuing our own promotion or our own pride and arrogance, but proclaiming alone the glory of our great God and Savior. And church, if you're sitting in here today and if you have not come to, to understand this message, if you are resting in your own self-efforts and striving after your own name being proclaimed, if you are trying to build a small kingdom for yourself, there is so much hope for you at the foot of the cross, right? May God send his spirit to change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. May he open your eyes and give you ears to hear. And if you are in here and you are a true child of God, will you partner together, right? May we as the church of Christ, may we partner together in the pursuit of, of taking the gospel to the nations. Will you pray with me? Father, it is a, a glorious thing to see the beauty of the diversity of your church. It is a glorious reality to know that you, from beginning until end, it is only your power alone which brings sinners into the fold. As we sang this morning, we consider our shepherd who will not let us go. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And your son speaks, speaks of himself as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the wayward one. Well, Lord, may we consider even, even the smallest people group, even the one lost soul to be worth our lives. Father, may you, may you give us the confidence. May you take away the fear of man from within us as we seek to proclaim your saving message to our neighbors and to the nations. 
Lord, we thank you for every encounter that we have with every person that comes into our lives, recognizing that not a single moment is not under your sovereign control, and you bring every person into our lives for a very specific purpose. And so may we with confidence proclaim that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is the only hope unto salvation. Lord, you are so good to us. You are a God who deserves all power, all glory, and all praise. And it is in the great name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing the song of salvation.